Well, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and join me in the book of Acts. We are in Acts 25 this morning. Acts 25, we will um, be picking up in verse 13, and we will uh, traverse all the way to the end of Acts 26. So another fairly lengthy passage before us this morning, Acts 25.13 through 26.32. The title of our sermon is One More Trial. And the key words for our worshipers in training are King, Faith, and Christian. Today we come to the end of Luke's accounting of Paul's legal trials that the Lord would use to bring Paul from Jerusalem to Rome. All the way back in Acts 21, we saw Paul nearly beaten to death by a mob in Jerusalem, dragging him out of the temple, attempting to end his life. They did this because of rumors that a group of Jews from Asia had started about Paul, and this near lynching led to his arrest by the Roman tribune, Claudius, or Claudius Lysias. Lysias uh, was not eager to offend the Jews, but he was unable to find any fault in Paul. And once he learned of a plot, an ambush of the Jews against Paul, he sent Paul in protective custody under the cover of night to the Roman governor, Felix, in Caesarea. And he asked him to decide Paul's case. Well, Despite also being certain that the charges against Paul were bogus, Felix, sadly, not particularly a just man, mostly concerned with not upsetting the Jews, he does them a favor and he leaves Paul in prison for two whole years and refused to pardon him when he left office. Felix was replaced by a man named Festus who, as the new governor, was also eager to do the Jews a favor. We're sensing a bit of a pattern here with these Roman officials. Now Festus attempted to have Paul moved back to Jerusalem from his prison cell in uh, Caesarea. But Paul wisely objected to this suggestion since the Jews had set another ambush for him that he could have been certain of. Instead, what Paul did was to appeal to the Roman emperor, to Caesar. Now, this would have been Nero, no particularly just man either, and yet Paul insisted that if he was to be uh, continually held in captivity, he would continue to run his trial up the chain of command. He was, after all, eager, desperate even to get to Rome ever since we saw in uh, Acts 19, even. Well, Festus conferred with his council, and he decided that Paul was to go to Caesar. But as we'll see today, this decision uh, presents Festus with another problem of a different kind, and so he must seek help from yet another civil magistrate before finally sending Paul off to Rome, as we'll see next week in chapter 27, Lord willing. Well, let's read these verses now, beginning in 25, 13. We'll read all of it, 
we'll outline the sermon and then get to work. Acts 25:13. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix, and when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay. But on the next day, took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving of death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day, And for this I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often 
in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have prepared to you, I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light (coughs) and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by me in faith. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds and keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in their temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, say nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind! Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words, for the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with him. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Well, we'll take up the text in three parts. First, in chapter 25, verses 13 through 27, we will consider Paul being brought before Agrippa. Second, in 26... Verses 1 through 23, we will see Paul make his defense before Agrippa. And third, in 26, 24 through 32, we'll see Paul's trip to Rome finally, surely confirmed. 
So look with me in the first place, chapter 25, verses 13 through 27, where we see Paul brought in before Agrippa. This Agrippa is Herod Agrippa II, son of Herod Agrippa, whom we met back in Acts 12. Remember, he was the one who executed John and imprisoned Peter and then spoke uh, somewhat, we would say, blasphemously and fell over dead at the judgment of God. Agrippa II, the one before us here in Acts 25 and 26, he was the grandson of Antipas who beheaded John the Baptist and he was the great-grandson of Herod the Great who attempted to murder Jesus as a boy. So a long line of Herod, Agrippa's, uh, of Herod's that uh, were sort of quite against the Christian religion. Paul stands before him. Now, the emperor had um, Claudius, Emperor Claudius, previously had placed Agrippa in charge of the temple and appointment uh, of the high priest. And so, uh, while the official rule of Judea belonged to the governor, to Festus here, Agrippa did have significant influence over, uh, over the Jews. And so, it is fitting that Festus would confer with him since he had come to uh, Caesarea. And so Agrippa arrives with uh, his sister Bernice, with whom he was rumored to have an incestuous relationship. And Festus relays to him what we saw in last week's passage. The Jews wanted Paul dead, but had failed to produce any legitimate charges against him. Festus had determined that it was simply a dispute over the Jewish religion, and in particular about what to do with this man, Jesus, who had died, whom Paul now was asserting to be alive. And so, it was no criminal case, he was determined, and yet he needed Agrippa to weigh in, and Agrippa agrees to do so. So the next day, after Agrippa and Bernice, they settle into the audience hall with great uh, pomp and circumstance, Festus has Paul brought in and he introduces him uh, this way. He tells them that it was the entire Jewish nation that had petitioned Festus against the man, wanted him to be executed. He says, but I didn't find anything in him deserving of death. But I did, re- I did grant his request to appear before Caesar. However, dear king, I need help writing the charges against him. Because I can't send him off to Rome without charging him with something. So if you will hear him out and help me figure out what to say, that would be super. Such wisdom from the civil magistrate here. And again, as we've seen over the past several weeks, we we see a blatant lack of concern, a blatant disregard for justice by the uh, the Roman magistrates. Because on the one hand, it was simply not true that Festus had no charges to write. He had no true charges, no legitimate charges to write, but he had been told very plainly and clearly what the charges of the Jews were. The problem was that he had no evidence to back up these charges. Now the truth is, Festus should have had the courage to declare Paul innocent and simply release him. But, as Jesus made clear to Paul back in 22.11, Paul was bound for Rome. 
to bear witness to Christ there as he had in Jerusalem. And so through the injustice of this whole entire proceeding, we are reminded again by this scene that even through the sin of man, the injustice of man, God brings about his good and perfect will in the world. It was Paul's godly ambition and God's immovable will that Paul should make it to Rome, the the center of the world at the time. He wanted to get there to preach Christ. And so, having no justification for continuing this circus trial against Paul, the magistrates persist. Festus doesn't want to short-circuit the appeal to the emperor, but neither did he think that he could send him to Rome without a reasonable explanation. He needed something to use against Paul, and so he is, Paul is asked to speak once more. And so that's the first point. Paul is brought in and it is for the purpose of drumming up charges against him, hoping that Paul might speak some condemning word against himself. Look with me in the second place, beginning in chapter 26, first 23 verses, where we see Paul's defense laid out before Agrippa. And we see his defense here in three, uh, three parts. First, he, he, he definitely claims innocence, once again, against all the charges being brought against him. Then uh, he details his conversion to Christ and the commission that he received from him. And third, he demonstrates his obedient response in light of Christ's fulfillment of the Old Testament Scripture. So consider with me Paul's declaration of innocence in these opening verses of chapter 26. He recognizes uh, Agrippa's um, as king of of the Jews at the time, um, that he had familiarity with the Jewish system and, and their controversies, and so he, he lays before him his innocence. Paul's life and his commitment as a Pharisee had been no secret. He was a persecutor of the church even, prior to his conversion. His credentials were unquestionable to any who knew him. He was a, a well-known adherent to the customs of the party of the Pharisees, the strictest of the Jewish religion. And he restates again that he, he, he says these things here about who he was before Christ in order to give further weight to the reality. It was not because of any breach of the law that Paul was on trial. It was because of his belief that God promised a resurrection and then that promise had been fulfilled. Now, Paul doesn't quote any specific passage here in his defense. But he does make clear that the hope of the resurrection was neither new nor unique to him. Rather, it was based upon a promise made by God a long time ago to the Jewish fathers. One that all twelve tribes still hoped to attain as they worshipped night and day. And so Paul, he exclaims that it's rather surprising that this proclamation of a risen Messiah should be so incredible to them. He goes on and he describes the particulars of his conversion. 
and his apostolic commission. This is now the third time in Acts that we have been told this story by Luke. Once in his own words in chapter 9, and then in chapter 22, and now in chapter 26, we get Paul's telling of the story. The details vary a little from one to the other, but overall, the story is the same. Paul was on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians, and a light from heaven shone around him in the middle of the day, brighter than the sun, blinding him, and the resurrected Christ spoke to him out of the light. Now those who were with him understood that something wild was happening, and yet they were kept from grasping the full extent of the interaction They couldn't understand what was being said. And eventually they have to lead him into Damascus as he's blind. But this retelling here by Paul in Acts 26 doesn't focus so much on his conversion as it does his commission. The Lord Jesus tells him that he is persecuting him. It's hard for Paul to kick against the goads. Paul was striving in a futile manner against the work of the Lord and against the direction that God was leading him. And so he calls him now, formally, finally, certainly into his service. Paul is to be a witness against, uh, not against the Gentiles, but to the Gentiles, among the Gentiles. So that they may open their eyes. They may turn from darkness to light. Now, this turning, this conversion here is not mere intellectual enlightenment. It is a shift in allegiance. Jesus describes it in verse 17 and 18. He describes it as turning from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. Paul's ministry was to the Gentiles such that they would receive the forgiveness of sins bought for them in the death of Christ and that they might find a place among those who are sanctified by faith in the Lord Jesus. And so Paul has outlined for Agrippa his credentials, his Conversion and commission, and then beginning in verse 19, he describes his obedient response to the heavenly vision. He declares to all upon this commission, all those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and Judea, Jews and Gentiles, he says that they should repent, turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Remember, Paul helps us here. He says it was his association with Gentiles and his message to them that they could come to Christ without first becoming Jews. This is what had stirred up the Jews' animosity toward him in the first place when they seized him in the temple trying to murder him. Yet he says that God helped him. Helped him to the present day so that he might proclaim no more and no less than what the Old Testament prophets said should happen. That the Christ would suffer and rise from the dead. Whereby, as the first to enter the new creation, by rising from the dead, the Lord Jesus would bring light both to Jews and Gentiles. And again, when he, he brings us back to this claim that the message 
His message that he proclaimed was neither new nor unique to him. His message was drawn explicitly from the hope already contained in the Old Testament. You see, the Old Testament message in Toto was that the Messiah would enter his never-ending rule over his world-encompassing kingdom to bring light to those in darkness through death and resurrection. The Jews, by and large, had mistakenly concluded that the Messiah would come and immediately bring about the full glory of God's kingdom. The problem is that the Old Testament, both by foreshadowing and foretelling, expected a Messiah who would die and then rise from the dead to reign as God's forever king. We've referenced Isaiah 52 and 53 a lot. Uh, He doesn't quote it here, and so we won't either, but that passage of the suffering servant was always close at hand for Paul. And that passage makes it explicitly clear that the servant, whom we should identify as the Messiah, was to die and then to see life after death. Now, here's the thing. It took the actual death and resurrection of Christ to make that expectation a beyond a shadow of a doubt reality and to make it clear. But Paul is saying that now that Christ has come, there should have been no doubt that this is what the Old Testament Scriptures expected. This is what the Jews should have understood, but they didn't. They were those who remained in the dark. And so we must ask ourselves, how does one become a partaker of the Messiah's never-ending kingdom of light? How do we escape the blindness that comes from Satan's grip on sinners? According to Jesus, in verse 18, it is by faith in Him. So do you have faith? Are you among those being sanctified by faith? Have you been and are you being set apart in devotion to God by faith? Friends, Jesus is still today rescuing blinded sinners from the grips of Satan. The message continues to go forth whereby Christ's church bears witness to Him in a hostile world. And Christ uses that message to open blind eyes and deliver from darkness. So are you sitting in darkness this morning? If you are, I would entreat you to come to Jesus Christ and see. And if not, but you have someone in your mind and in your heart now who is blind, a friend or family member, what is the message that they need to hear? But of Christ crucified and risen from the dead. Jesus has triumphed, as we heard earlier, over the principalities, the authorities. He has conquered the power of Satan and extends forgiveness to people all over the earth. 
And so that's Paul's defense. He lays out his innocence, his credentials, the Jewish religion. He's no heretic. He is proclaiming the fulfillment of all that they should have expected. All he is doing is obeying God. So that brings us to a third, a third point. Where he's, he's sort of interrupted. His, his, his defense has, has concluded. But Festus interjects here in this third point in verses 24 through 32. And we, we see a conclusion to this legal circus finally reached. Paul concludes his defense. Festus interjects and says, Paul, you are mad. You're a madman. You are just too smart. Right? You've, you've got too much training. You've read too many books. And you're going a bit batty for it. But Paul denies it plainly, directly. I'm not crazy. I'm not mad. I'm speaking true and rational words. And then he uses, he brings in Agrippa as an example to demonstrate. He says, Agrippa knows these things. Right? You, Festus, Roman governor, new Roman governor, you've been aloof to a lot of this. I mean, you probably know, um, some, you know something about this man, Jesus, but you don't know anything about our Old Testament scriptures. This Jewish king would know. He says, the hope of the Old Testament fulfilled in this man Jesus it hasn't been done in a corner Agrippa hasn't been blind to it I know that he has seen it and heard about these things and then Paul boldly squares up to Agrippa and he asks do you believe the prophets I know you believe it's a bold move because he set a trap He set a trap for Agrippa. If Agrippa were to agree, if he does believe the prophets, if he says, yeah, I believe the prophets, which as a Jew he should believe the prophets, the implication of Paul's question is, well, you should therefore believe in Jesus since they all wrote about him. Well, Agrippa perceptively understands the implication of this question and um, He doesn't provide anything of substance, but he does somewhat skillfully evade the question. Paul, would you in a short time persuade me to be a Christian? So he answers a question with a question, but then Paul gets right to the heart of it. Not only yes, O king. Absolutely, positively yes, I want you to be a Christian. You and everyone who can hear me. And we might extend it, apply it in our moment, not just those who heard Paul in that moment, but all who read these words. Whether short or long, whether it's a short time or a long time, I would to God that every single one of you be a Christian, a follower of the crucified and risen Jesus. Yet, Agrippa is unwilling. He's unwilling to submit himself to Paul's Lord. He moves on and makes his declaration. But before we consider that and and some concluding 
applications of, of these trials, I want to, to note something that's particularly noteworthy and interesting about Agrippa's rejection here. Agrippa, as I've said, he's the Jewish king. And so he is set forth by Luke here with a sense of corporate solidarity. He doesn't function merely as an individual. His, his personal rejection of the Messiah is noteworthy. But also of importance here is the way that he represents Judaism in its final days. Gordon Ketty observes this, Agrippa's response to Paul's evangelistic witness stands as a kind of ratification of the rejection of the gospel by the Jewish establishment. He was the reigning Jewish monarch at the time of the destruction of the temple in AD 70, just a few years after this. And as such, he presided over the last days of the Old Testament order. Together with the high priest, he represented the blindness of the Jewish establishment to their own messianic hope. Agrippa was, so to speak, a nail, one of many, certainly, in the coffin of the apostate church of the Old Testament age. In his encounter with Paul, he drove his nail home. Within a decade, the Old Testament church disappeared forever. And so Paul, on the one hand proclaims to Agrippa that he is here to proclaim light to those who are in darkness. Thinking primarily of his mission to the Gentiles. And yet, Agrippa's rejection of Paul's Messiah is proof that it's not just the Gentiles who were in darkness, but it was the unbelieving Jews in darkness as well. Luke has been driving this point home all through the book of Acts. All the way back in Acts 1, really even earlier in his gospel, he makes clear that the old covenant age was being brought to an end and that the kingdom of God was being given to others not from the physical line of Abraham. And this encounter, Paul's encounter with this Jewish king is a sort of a next to last snapshot that Luke will give us of Israel's complete rejection of God and his Messiah. Now this, of course, doesn't mean that there aren't individual Jews. We've seen it all through Acts who will embrace the Messiah. But as a whole, the Jewish religion has rejected the Messiah and God's salvation. Now, as I said, this isn't the last word on this matter that Luke gives us in this book, but it's a significant one and it's Essentially, the next to the last word on it. So, Agrippa has heard from Paul, rejected his, his message and his Lord. He leaves the court. He confirms with those with him that there was nothing in the Jews' charge against Paul. But he has appealed to Caesar. And so they didn't want to circumvent the Roman system. And so the only thing left to do is for them to send him to Rome which they do at the beginning of chapter 27. We're not told what charges they eventually write up. We can assume they just passed along uh, the charges that they had, regardless of how empty they were. So we've come to, this, to the end of this long section of trials for Paul. Paul was arrested back in Acts 21, 
And we've tried to cover it quickly, but for several weeks now, we've sort of seen, in some regard, the same thing. We've seen this on repeat. And it's worth asking, what do we do with all of this? What do we do with Paul's discussions with Lysias, with his testimony before the angry mob in, in, in Acts 22? What do we do with his defense before the Sanhedrin in chapter 23? His defense before Felix in chapter 24? Before Festus in chapter 25? And now Agrippa in chapter 26? Well, there's lots of things we could probably say, but I want to just draw out two lessons for us. Um, Two lessons to set before you in closing. First, God calls us to live in a manner worthy of our status as citizens of his kingdom. Over and over and over again in these chapters, Paul repeatedly declares that he is guiltless of the Jews' criminal accusations against him. Now, it's not as important that he declares it to be so, but that he actually is. He has not apostatized from the Old Testament, from the faith of his fathers. Neither is he guilty of sedition. In other words, he's not blasphemed God, nor has he criminally sinned against his neighbor. This is Paul's statement of reality over and over again regarding the charges. And so we, likewise, must commit to live in such a way that gives our enemies no just cause against us. Paul said in his defense before Festus that if he had committed a capital offense, he was willing to accept death. He wouldn't run from it. But he, since he had not done such a thing, it would be unjust to execute him. And so we must seek to live lives that cast no shade on the kingdom of Christ. Your life as a Christian, friends, is a life lived before a watching world. Before those who are hostile to Christianity. Before those who are somewhat indifferent to it in a manner of speaking. Some who perhaps may be growing curious about it. Right now, there are people in your life looking upon you, making valuations of the Lord Jesus. And many are looking for a reason to reject you. So Christians, we must commit to just and holy living. Anything less works to dilute our witness at best and absolutely bring shame upon the name of Christ at worst. And look, if you're falsely accused of wrongdoing, don't you want to have the same kind of clear conscience that Paul had? I love the story of Spurgeon. A man comes to him threatening to uh, tell everybody something that he knew about him or whatever, and, and he's trying to blackmail him, and Spurgeon says, man, you can write my life across the sky. Spurgeon was a man who had nothing to hide. Paul was a man who had nothing to hide. And so ask yourself, let's ask ourselves, what sin in our lives, what sin in your life right now needs to be mortified, needs to be confessed? What sins do you tend to give a pass to? What are the sins that you harbor that were they to be brought into the light would bring reproach upon Christ? My friends, confess them. 
to God. Confess them to those you have hurt. Seek forgiveness and freedom. We need to live holy lives that are above reproach if we are to bear witness for Christ. But second, if we are to bear witness for Christ, we must bear witness for Christ, not just with our lives, but with our words. We must be bold and gentle and loving in our witness. As you see Paul in these many chapters here, he is granted opportunity after opportunity to bear witness to his Lord. How tempting might it have been to just say, you know what, I'm done. I'm done talking, I'm done explaining myself, I'm just going to be quiet. Now he may have done that, and that may have been right to do, but each time he had the chance, he took it, and he proclaimed a consistent message without fear. He proclaimed a message with gentleness, respect, and grace to people who were beating him to death. He calls them brothers and fathers, to these unjust Civil magistrates, Felix in particular, is known to have been a very vile and wicked ruler. He refers to them and speaks to them with, with, with grace and kindness and respect. And he does so desiring that everyone who hears him would become a Christian, including the king. What he wants is not his own physical salvation. He's not looking to just escape. He wants people to come to Christ. He speaks boldly, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? But never cruelly. He never calls anybody any names. He doesn't return reviling for reviling. Now many of us, most of us in fact, will almost certainly not be called to bear witness to Christ in this kind of particular way that Paul does before multiple civil magistrates with our lives hanging on each word that we speak. Though, we certainly might. It's possible that that could happen. But whether it does, or whether or not it's simply you being offered the opportunity to bear witness to Christ in your life, day in and day out, there are people that you know with varying degrees of hostility toward Christ. So whether it's before a civil magistrate, or before a family member, or a co-worker, or parents, if it's before your children, bearing witness to Christ, let us speak of Christ with the same kind of kindness and boldness that Paul extends before his enemies. Wanting what is good and right and best for them, their salvation from their sins and their fellowship with God. These six chapters, Acts 21 to 26, are admittedly a lot. There's a lot of repetition. You know, it's basically, as I've been thinking through it, preaching these sermons, reading these, these chapters, it's like five slightly different versions of the same trial. Paul's brought up, fruit, you know, needlessly, no crime. He defends himself. The ruler says, yeah, there's nothing to... to to hold him on, let's pass it, let's pass the buck, kick to someone else. And so it can be a lot to work through these things, but the point of it all is to present us with a, a great example in Scripture of what it looks like to boldly yet graciously 
defend our faith in the Lord Jesus before a sinful world. And to do so completely dependent upon Christ. Paul did not in any way see himself as sufficient for this task. He relied fully upon God and we are called to do the same. And so my prayer is that as we get, if we've gotten through these chapters here and we're nearing the end of the book of Acts, I pray that we would rise to the occasion whenever we are called upon for the advancement of God's kingdom as it continues to triumph over the kingdom of darkness. May we bear witness, living lives of holiness for the sake of Christ and his kingdom now and forever. Amen.